It's so good to be with you. I had such a great time last time I was here, and, um, and I, I understand I'm the, I'm the first one to be invited back a second time. Like, I was here in 2010, so it takes a little while. But um, thrilled to be with you, truly honored to be with you. Um, the United Methodist community has been incredibly supportive, the most supportive denomination that I ever interact with. And um, I think part of it is uh, Wesley was very uh, relational in his understanding of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Um, and uh, your roots are very much inside the Trinity. Uh, there was a writer, I think it was Carl Rahner, who said that if you took the Trinity out of 95% um, of the uh, Christian community, churches, out of the churches, they wouldn't even notice that they were gone. <laughs> it's the centrality of this relationship, that there's nothing deeper about the character and nature of God than relationship. So I, I never intended to be a published author or, a, you know, on platforms and things like that. I was uh, working three jobs, shipping and receiving and cleaning toilets and a hotel night clerk. And, and, um, but I had a lot of years of, of dismantling what I thought I knew about the character and nature of God and then rebuilding and, and, and along with that comes an understanding of what it means to be human. And it had taken me 50 years to finally get to the place where I was comfortable inside my own skin. And uh, hard journey, let me tell you. It was arduous. We, we all have to work out that which God works in. And, um, and it takes work. And you have to turn toward it and toward the losses. You have to go back in your own shack. Not what I did most of my life was to build a facade outside of it so that I could paint it, paint it as fast as I could pick up people's expectations. And I lived from the outside in because my whole world was a thin layer of perfectionist performance covering up an ocean of shame. And, uh, and that has to do with a number of things. A very abusive relationship with my dad who, who didn't have a chip for being a dad that capacity was broken in him before I showed up, but I didn't know. I just knew he was angry and, and, and hit really hard. And um, so my, my childhood was a, a, an avoidance childhood. I was just trying to stay away from him. Good thing he was a missionary so that he was busy most of the time. And um, my mother was a follower. She was a medical missionary, and so I was raised by the tribal people. I was a year old when we went into the highlands of New Guinea, and that's where I grew up. Um, we came back to Canada when I was about 10. My father became an itinerant pastor, and uh, I went to 13 schools before I graduated high school. So I'm an expert at leaving, right? Every hello is a goodbye waiting to happen. And it took, uh, it took a relationship to expose my life. Um, people say, how did you end up in Oregon? I said, I met a woman. <laughs> you know, her name's Kim. And Kim, Kim saved my life and paid a really high price for it. Unfair. Very unfair. So Kim comes from a very different world than me. She's born in Minot, North Dakota. Salt of the earth people, there's no 50 shades of gray in Minot, North Dakota. <laughs> it's either this or that. You betcha, you know. And um, they, they love loud. They hug loud. They're, they are right there in front of you. I, that's not my world. I come from a religious family. We hide everything. We lie about most stuff. 
You know. We have to have an order of service when we get together, you know. So, um, seriously, my dad is one of those old-time preachers, and uh, you know the kind that when you ask him to pray, he gets possessed, he has a different voice and stuff, you know. And the first time he did that, and Kim was around, she burst out laughing, thinking he was joking. Yeah. So Kim, um, Kim has five sisters and two brothers, and her and her five sisters are called the Force. May the Force be with you. And uh, I tell people I married the wrath of God, you know, which is, turns out, and I'm now convinced, that the wrath of God is the love of God, right? It is the fiery fury that is opposed to everything that hurts the ones you love. And, um, but... Uh, like I said, she paid a high price. I drug all my baggage into my relationship with Kim, into our marriage, like I think a lot of us do. And, um, um, and it just took a, a lot of exposure and, and choices to look for help um, that started me on a journey toward wholeness. But it took 50 years before I was finally comfortable inside my own skin. And that's when I felt free enough to do something that Kim had been asking me to do, which was to write something as a gift for our kids. Because I wrote, but I never tried to publish anything and never planned to. Um, poetry, songs, short stories, you know, just stuff that everybody does. And, and she said, write something because you, because you think outside the box. Write something as a gift for our kids that puts in one place how you think. So for Christmas, the year we had nothing. Literally, I and mean, we had I had nothing to give the kids for Christmas. That's the year that I wrote the shack on the train to one of my three jobs. Made 15 copies at Office Depot. Six to the kids. Kim got a copy. The extras to my friends. Went back to work. Never crossed my mind to publish. They did those 15 copies. Did everything I ever wanted that book to do. So everything that has had a ripple effect after that has been totally God's sense of humor, right? It's, it's like I can prove to the world that I can speak through anybody. Right? It's so great. <laughs> My kids, I, I, people say, how do you stay grounded? Because I've ended up into the, in this really amazing confluence of circumstances and notoriety and platform, all the things that are they're kind of nuts, right? And they say, how do you keep grounded? I, I'm, I say, I'm surrounded by people who love me but aren't impressed. And my kids will go, Dad, Dad, you're not that cool, really. <laughs> it's so great. I love it. And, uh, and I'm, I have friends who've, who are the same friends today as before I wrote the book. Everything that matters to me was in place, finally, before I wrote the book. Identity, worth, value, security, meaning, purpose, destiny, community, love, missing something in there, but they were all in place before I wrote the book. So the book has added none of that to me. What the book has done is invited me and my family and my friendships into the holy ground of other people's stories. People's stories is holy ground because inside their stories, you will see the activity of God where God is a fire who burns away only that which is not living and always carefully respects what is living. And uh, I tell people, I think that's why we're born barefooted. 
that you know, were intended to walk on holy ground, and the invitation into other people's stories. So the book becomes this phenomenon. My friends start giving it away. It leads to the whole chain reaction of things that ended up with it becoming this international mega bestseller, and then Crossroads came in behind it, and then uh, Eve came in behind that, and then now Lies We Believe About God. When Lies We Believe About God came out, um, Oprah got a hold of me a couple months ago. And uh, they wanted me to be on Super Soul Sunday. I don't know if anybody saw that. Um, yeah. And uh, it turned out absolutely beautiful. Um, and Oprah wanted to talk about lies. We always wondered why she didn't want to talk about the shack, because it seemed to be such a fit um, for her perspective. But I think part of it was that the shack kind of beat the Oprah's book club selection for like two years in a row. So, you know... <laughs> Yeah, it's just conjecture. But um, so I got to meet her, and and you don't meet her until you're on camera. She she likes it that way because she wants the first interaction to be absolutely authentic. She doesn't want you to kind of rehearse it and go through that. And I'm telling you, she is one of the kindest, most gracious human beings I've ever had an interaction with. And um, by the way, um, interestingly enough, uh, that her name would come up. But she did a show called Legends. I don't know if any of you saw it where she invited 50 African-American women who have done fantastic things. A lot of them were gospel singers, like Patti LaBelle and, and, and others, and um, invited them to her place in Santa Barbara. And they filmed this. It was sort of a documentary. It end, ends up in one of the most magnificent worship services I've, I've ever watched on film. But during that show... She is interview, in, in an interview, she's in the, a backyard, it's in the evening, and they're talking, and, finally, and they're talking about her history um, inside the church and, and, uh, and her own abuse, because, you know, besides a difficult relationship with my dad, sexual abuse was a part of the brokenness of my childhood, uh, both in the tribal culture and then at missionary boarding school. And um, so she and I have a lot of things in common um, as far as our hurt, well, during this show, when she was interviewed, she says, do you want me to sing for you my favorite song, my favorite song of all time? And the interviewer says, absolutely. You know what she sings? All to Jesus I Surrender, the song we started with. So when that popped up, I'm going like, okay, okay, all to Jesus I Surrender. You know, apart from Jesus, there is no hope to work through the darkness of our lives. There just isn't. And we're not talking about Jesus, who is that afterthought of God for Adam's choice. We're talking about the fact that everything is made in, by, for, through him. You've always been in Christ, whether you know it or not. Now, your relationship is impacted by whether you want it or not. You know, my kids are my kids, right? They're always going to be my kids. They can, but they could change their name. They'd still be my child, right? They could say, I never want to talk to you again. That impacts relationship, but it never denies the truth that they are my child. Every human being is a child of God, whether they know it or not, or want it or not, because all of creation is created in Christ. Not anything that has come into being has come into being apart from him. And, and Paul on Mars Hill says, even you know 
that we live and move and have our being in him. We are all children of God. It's Paul. So the book becomes this thing. Conversation starts about it becoming a movie. Actually, the conversation about the movie preceded the idea of putting into, you know, legitimate published print. And, uh, and there were three guys in California who, when they first read that little plastic-covered, spiral-bound manuscript, immediately wanted to make it into a movie. And so that started the conversation about putting it into print. That starts the chain reaction that, that we had, and then finally ends up with the movie. So when I laid down the rights for the film, I laid them down 100%. No creative control, no income, no nothing. I'm like, I laid it down. It was part of how we would work out um, going in different directions. Because you have to understand, I didn't know anything about publishing, didn't know anything about movies. I totally naive, and I walked into a situation. If, you know, if the book had not been successful, there would have not been any issues. <laughs> But sometimes success has a way of bringing crap out of people that failure never does. <laughs> Just saying. And you've got to work it out. This is the human condition. You know? You've got to find a way. And, part, and the Holy Spirit really, on the way to um, a meeting, um, I was flying into California, and the Holy Spirit really said, now lay it down. Lay it down. And I laid it down. 100%. So I didn't anticipate... And, it's, and because I laid it down, everything else worked, which was amazing. I've, by the way, I have never regretted that decision for an instance. Because as soon as the Holy Spirit said, lay it down, it was like, oh my goodness, because nobody expected that. And it was, it was like this brilliant move that the Holy Spirit let me take some credit for. I've, got, I've gotten pretty used to the idea that one of the things the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit loves to make everyone else look good. Haven't you been in conversations where you're saying something to somebody and out of your mouth is coming stuff you've never heard before, but you know that it's like, this is so good, I got to remember it, <laughs> right? And in that moment, you know that that person is thinking, this is the most brilliant human being on the planet. Yeah? And it's I, the Holy Spirit. That's why I made Saryu Asian. Because I've been, I grew up in Asia. Asian women always promoting somebody else. But they show up where you don't expect them and they know everything. So, you know, that, that worked for me. In, in this movement of turning it into a movie, um, I didn't anticipate being involved. And so when Lionsgate called me up, I'd just come back from... Korea about crossroads and uh, they called me up and said would you come talk to us I think partly they were checking out to see if I was going to be an enemy of the project <laughs> I think I have never asked them I should but um, but we just sat at the top floor of Lionsgate secular movie house company in California in Hollywood and all we did is told stories and cried because the book had already impacted them at a human level and had found a place inside their world. So it was great. Then I got a call from the, the uh, producer, and he said, would you look at the script? Sure. Then I got a call from um, uh, the producer and the director, and we started talking about actors. So I got involved in that. 
I got involved in uh, being on set. In fact, I was on set twice. The first day of the shoot, and Lionsgate called me up and said, Paul, would you consider coming on the first day shoot and praying a blessing over the entire cast and crew? Yeah, secular movie houses do that all the time, right? <laughs> Are you kidding? Yeah, so I did. And so I'm up at White Rock. Up in, They shot most of it in British Columbia. And um, they have all these different set locations. And when you shoot a movie, you don't shoot it in sequence. It depends on when the actors are available. So it's all shot out of sequence, and then the editors put it all together. Um, so they have different site locations that you go to. And um, the first day, I pray this blessing, and then I get to hang out with everybody. So I'm, I'm meeting Joseph Nemec, who did the set design, who had always wanted to do the shack. And, um, uh, and it had been given to somebody else, and then that person uh, couldn't do it. And it, they turned to Joseph. And Joseph is a lover of Jesus, and he... He crafted the set design. That casket, the, he hand-built that, right? And so I'm hanging out with the set people, and I get to meet Tim McGraw, and he, um, he has father issues, so we, we connected instantly. Did you know that his dad was Tug McGraw? Remember back in the day, the baseball player? Tim was a result of a one-night stand, didn't know who his dad was till he was 12 years old. And um, so, you know, Everybody, uh, Sam Worthington was on set, and he plays Mackenzie. And Sam walks onto the set with a 10-week-old baby, a little baby boy, Rocket, Rocket Worthington. And, uh, but Sam now has a tangible connection to what it's like potentially to lose a child, and he brings all of that. When he's been asked about his own spiritual journey, he, he has told the interviewers, my journey is Mackenzie's. He says, you watch the film. All those questions are my questions. Because he grew up peripherally with the church in Australia and didn't have great experiences and then had gone off sideways. And now it's all coming back. So making the movie was a, a significant part of his own spiritual journey. You know, in the scene, how many have seen the movie? Good chunk of you. There is a scene in the garden where... It's a very emotional scene, and, and all of a sudden, there's this butterfly that shows up and lands right on Sam's nose. It's not CGI. It was in the shot, and out of nowhere comes this butterfly, and out of all the characters standing there, it lands on Sam's nose, and his response is perfect, and they kept it in the film. So stuff like that would happen. So at the end of the day, the first day on the set, it's getting close to a wrap, and um, I get to meet with the kids, the, the kids that, that play um, Kate and Josh. They brought copies of the shack for me to sign. It's so cool. So at the end of the day, I hear Gil Netter, who did Life of Pi, Marley and Me, Blindside, the producer. He says, hey, Paul, you want to be in a cameo? A cameo? Like in the movie cameo? He goes, yeah. He says, I've never shot a movie where the author was alive that I didn't put the author in it. Sure, what do I have to do? It's ah, simple. In this scene, all you have to do is walk through behind um, the actors that are talking. You just walk through the scene. You're in the neighborhood. You just walk through. I've walked most of my life. <laughs> right? But you do, I don't think about walking. I just do it. 
and now I've got to think about walking. It only took five takes. Don't photobomb this time. You can't look, right? So, so if you watch the movie, it's in the scene where uh, Tim McGraw, who plays Willie, is walking over to, to talk to um, Mackenzie and the kids that are being piled in the car and Nan saying goodbye to them, and they're heading for Wallawa Lake. And, and as, uh, as he comes with a dog, Tim's got a dog, and he says, summer's last hurrah, that's how the scene starts. And there's a conversation between the two of them, and at one point, as you're focused on Tim's face, you'll see this little old, balding, short, little overweight white guy just walk through the back, like for two seconds. That's me. So, so it's like, my kids are going to love this. So it's great. So I did, so I got to be in the, I'm in the movie. Ha! Huh. And uh, unexpected. So at the end of the day, fine, I fly back to Oregon, and I'm going about my business. They're, they're shooting the movie. It takes them, I don't know, 60, 70 days at different site locations all over British Columbia. Near the end of their shoot, I get a call from Lionsgate. They said, would you consider coming back for another day? Absolutely. They said, we'll fly you up on Wednesday. Then we'll take you from Vancouver Airport to Chilliwack, which is about two and a half hours, depending on traffic. And um, that's where your hotel will be. And that night, you'll get a call sheet that will tell you what time we're picking you up on Thursday and what site location we're taking you to. And then we'll spend the whole day Thursday on set. Friday, we'll fly you back out of Vancouver home. I say, great. I'd love to do that. And um, I don't know what set it is. I don't know what site location. I don't know what they're shooting, right? Because you never know. And, and uh, even when you get the call sheet at night, you don't, the call sheet doesn't tell you what they're shooting. And so it's just like, okay, whatever, who cares? Right? How cool is this? Now, the first day that I'd been there, uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had been absent in any physical form. Like Octavia wasn't there, Sumi or Aviv weren't there. So I hadn't met them yet, and, but I didn't know if I was going to meet them this time either, but it didn't matter. I'm, I get to go on set. Like, that's so cool. So... Um, I'm sitting at my desk, and, and here's the framing. I, I now believe, growing up as a religious kid, it took me a long time, but I now believe that God is good all the time, right? It's a, that's a standard greeting that you folks do, which is incredibly meaningful to me. You know, God is good all the time. All the time, God is good, right? And that, I didn't believe that growing up. Not God the Father. Jesus, yeah, but not God the Father. And uh, God the Father was the darkness that Jesus came to save me from. <laughs> you know? so, so there was um, a real conflict for me. And, but I, I now wholeheartedly believe that God is never the author of hurt, sin, disaster, darkness, all that kind of stuff. We bring that to the table because of our own humanity's choices and what we've done that God has a high respect for. So God won't violate your will even for your own good because then you would lose the dignity of what it means to be human. Or to put it another way, you know why Jesus chooses not to sin? Because he doesn't want to become less human. 
God has a very high view of humanity, and God doesn't become something that is not good, and God becomes fully human. What does that tell you about being human? We have such a low view of humanity that we're always trying to climb ourselves out of a hole or cover up the fact that we think that we're worthless. And, and Jesus came to tell us the truth of who we are so that the way of who we are could match it. Does that make sense to you at all? Okay, thanks. So there is a God who's good all the time and involved in the details of our lives. And once you start paying attention, you begin to see these weavings happening over and over and over. Most of the time, we're not even present enough to pay attention, so it just passes us by. God does lots of things that we'll never know. I mean, look at the universe. How big is the universe? Stuff that only God will see. Right? It's, it's huge. And there are things, God does kindness because that's the way God is, not because God needs attention. But when you get to participate with this moving life of the presence of God, you begin to see things that are happening right around you. And, and you get to participate in it. So... I'm thinking, I'm sitting at my desk thinking like, okay, I'm going back. How cool is this? And then I think, I get this nudge. Nudge is the way I talk about how the Holy Spirit talks to me, is a nudge. I just get a nudge. And most of the time I think like, oh, that's a good idea. And then later I'm going like, oh my gosh, that was a nudge, right? And because God is not a bad communicator. He just, but he knows my language, Paul. He knows Paul's language. Most of my life, Christian-wise, I've been trying to hear God's speak in somebody else's language, right? That's how they heard God speak, so it must be the right way. God's not a bad communicator. God speaks to us all the time. But it's so natural to most of us that we discount it because we have shame in our history or a low self-view of, of, of ourselves, so we think we need to hear like somebody else does. But I get this nudge, and it's to contact a friend. Well, I'd never met him face-to-face, -face, but we'd interacted quite a bit. He's a He's a seminary professor who lives in Abbotsford, the town next to Chilliwack, where the hotel was, and he spends half the year teaching in London. His name's Brad Jerzak, and I'd read some of his books. I'd endorsed his recent book called A Christ-like um, Christ God, which I loved. And he'd read my Eve manuscript and was all over it. So we'd had a lot of interaction, but we'd never met. And I, I get this nudge. I wonder if Brad is even on the continent. Maybe I can connect with him and finally meet him. I'd met his wife, Eden, but I hadn't met Brad. So I email Brad. I don't, I give him the whole thing. You know, I don't know if you're in the continent or not, but uh, I'm coming up Wednesday. I'm coming up for a shoot. I don't know where it is, but um, are, are you around? Maybe we can grab coffee or something. Instantly get an email back. Can I pick you up at the airport? Okay, I contact transport. They say, save us five hours round trip. Sure. So, so now Brad's coming to pick me up at the airport. And Brad emails back and he says, okay, so I'll pick you up. We'll, we'll have lunch together because I'm coming in late morning. And then we'll spend the afternoon talk shop, theology and stuff. And then that evening we'll go to our house for supper with Eden. And then we'll take you to the hotel. And then you can spend the night at the hotel and uh, do your thing Thursday. Great. That is so cool. Ten minutes later, I get another email from Brad. This time, there's a photo attached to it. And in the photo is Brad, and there's an older gentleman. And Brad introduces me and says, this is Dwight. He's a businessman, one of my longtime best friends, married to Lori. Dwight and Lori Martin. And Dwight and Lori 
Uh, Lori is the spiritual formations director, but Dwight is the first person who gave me my copy of The Shack in 2008 and, and had told me about it. So, and, and, and they have a little summer cottage up at Cultus Lake, which is a big lake in the central south part of British Columbia. And we're spending a few days up there. And, and while you're emailing with me, I'm going for a walk with Brad in the woods. And look. So it's Brad, Dwight, and over here is this big green arrow that says, The Shack. There was one of the site locations was two and a half blocks away from Dwight and Lori's summer cottage that he didn't know was there. And as I'm emailing with them, they run into it. Like, that's amazing. So I'm going like, that's cool. I don't know if that's the site location that I'm going to be going to or not, but look, it's right there, right? And so that was kind of wild. So I, I fly up Wednesday. Brad picks me up. We have, it's like meeting, you know, you meet some people. It's like, I've known you my whole life kind of person. And you don't have to do a lot of, you know, let's try to feel each other out. Not, you know, so, um, but try to get inside your world. It was just like, bam. We had a great day. Go have supper with Eden. He drops me off at the hotel. I said to him, I'll try to get a hold of you. Now, here's one of the things I didn't tell you. When he sent me that picture, he also said, Paul, he said, the shack had an unbelievable impact in Dwight and Lori's life, but three years ago, the youngest of their five children, 16 years old, hung herself in the middle of the woods in a treehouse. You know, took her life and gave it back to God. And um, they're stuck. Um, Brad believes that if he could just read The Shack again, he could get unstuck, but he hasn't been able to make it past chapter one. And Lori is just furious. She is mad every day. She is angry at God. She doesn't understand. And she is angry because her daughter is dead. So if there's any possibility of you connecting with them, even if it's for 10 minutes, I think it would be really important. And I had written back and said, we will find a way. So that's at the background. So Brad drops me off at the hotel. At 11.30 that night, I get a call sheet. We'll pick you up at 9.30 and take you to the site location at Cultus Lake. I'm going to go to the site location they're shooting at for Thursday, two and a half blocks away from where the four of them are staying. So I get up there in the morning, and I walk over to um, Stuart Hazeldean, the director, and Gil Netter and Lonnie Netter, um, uh, who are producing the movie, and I say, well, I'm texting Brad, and, and I'm saying, I'm here, I'm at Cultus Lake, and he's going like, well, we have food ready for you, just let us know, we'll meet you down the waterfront, and then you know, you can come spend even 10 minutes. So I walk over to the, the three of them, and I say, you know, would there be any possibility that I have these four friends? And I had told the three of them about my emailing with Brad. You know those four friends? They're two and a half blocks away from here. Would there be any possibility that they could come on the set for the day? And not only did they say yes, they said, absolutely. And, 
And 20 minutes later, down the waterfront comes Brad and Eden, Dwight and Lori. And they are absolutely enveloped into this community that is shooting at this set. I still didn't know what they were shooting. So one of the reasons that they wanted me to come is they built the shack. You know, full life built it right there. And, and Octavia was there. And Aviv was there. And Sumi was there. And so, you know, it was like they wanted me to see this. And, but when you're shooting an outside scene, you can't hear anything because everything is mic'd up. And, and plus it's at a distance because you can't interfere with the shadows and all that kind of stuff. So what they did was they have a video village, it's called, and the producer and the director sit in front of these big, huge monitors because that's the actual camera shot. And they have headphones so that they can actually hear what's the sound that's being recorded. And when they shoot, they're going to shoot a scene all morning, one scene, all morning, take a break for lunch, shoot one scene all afternoon. Because they'll shoot it over and over and over again, um, 15, 20 times with different expressions, different ways, and then later the editors will put together the right combination. It's a very complex process. So they had five chairs for us in the video village right in front of the monitors so that we could sit there and watch the shot being, being done with headphones so that we could hear. So the scene for the morning. If you've seen the film, you've seen it where Mackenzie's had nightmares all night long and he comes out onto the porch for breakfast. He still doesn't know where he's at or really who these three are. And you can see he's haggard. He has got this underlying fury, but it's all controlled and contained. And he comes out on the porch and Papa's got breakfast for him. And she's humming and singing and she goes like, you like Neil Young? That's how it starts. You know, it used to be Bruce Coburn, but we couldn't get the rights fast enough. So, <laughs> I like Neil Young, yeah? And, uh, and he's okay. That's Sam's response, you know? And she says, how'd you sleep? Fine. She says, dreams are important. Sometimes they're a way of letting the bad air out. Opening up the window, letting the bad air out. That phrase is a Bruce Coburn lyric from one of his songs, so I got him in there anyway. But, but he sits down, and he, is, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't want to eat, whatever, and she starts a conversation. Now, this is what we're watching being filmed, right? And so she says, Mackenzie, the flaw in your thinking is that you don't believe that I'm good. I am. And I'm at work for good in everything that you consider to be a mess. But until you believe that I'm good, you're never going to be able to trust me. And he says, why would I ever trust you? My daughter is dead. And there's nothing you can do to change it. Smash, get up, walk away. And we're in the video village going, <gasps> And I look over, and everybody's in shock. And they reset, and we watch it again. And then we watch it again. Why would I ever trust you? My daughter is dead, Mackenzie. Until you believe that I am good, you're never going to be able to trust you. Why? By the third time, we're bawling. 
We take a break for lunch, and Octavia comes over and wraps herself up around Dwight and Lori, and uh, Aviv comes over and loves on him, and Sumi, who plays the Holy Spirit, and you're just watching this thing unfold, and we get back to the, the video village to watch the afternoon scene, and Papa comes out, and Mackenzie's sitting on the porch looking at that bird. She says, Mackenzie, pain is a way of clipping your wings so that you forget you were ever created to fly. You were created to be loved. Sometimes you're looking through this little knot hole and defining the whole universe through your losses. We're bawling. At the end of the day, I'm, I'm hugging on Dwight and Lori, and, and they say, you have no idea. And I'm thinking, like, you're right, I don't. But I know that there is a God who is good. Look at, look at the craftsmanship in terms of timing. And timing is where the miraculous happens. They had to invite me back a second time, right? And I had to get this nudge to contact Brad. Oh, and Brad's in the country. Oh, not as only in the country. He's walking in the woods. And while he's walking in the woods, while I'm talking to him, he runs right into a set, which is the set I'll be at. Oh, and it's at a summer cottage where Dwight and Lori are. And not only do they get invited, they get enveloped, and they get to sit in the video village and watch these two scenes shot for the whole day. They're unstuck. Last fall, Brad Jerzak and Lori Martin and I did a little conference in, in southern British Columbia called The Grand Embrace. And Lori named it that because when she walked onto the set, I hugged her, and I didn't let go of her until I felt something shift. That day got them unstuck, and Lori began to be able to talk about her grief and walk it out, and in relationship and community, and Dwight's been able to move, and their family has come to healing. Who could have orchestrated that? I was asking my son, who's a PhD in statistics, I said, Chad, what are the chances of this? <laughs> and he smiles and he looks at me and he says, Dad, 100%. There is a God who is good all the time and involved in the details of our lives. Who cares for you? You're the one, I'm the one that he left the 99 to go find. I'm part of the bits and pieces that were left over after the 5,000 were fed and Jesus said, make sure you pick it all up because I don't want one bit lost. This God and their relentless affection for you, you're not powerful enough to push away. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Papa. Thank you, Jesus, for the kindness of your grace that pursues us relentlessly.